What if there was all the will in the world in the U.S. to rein in health care costs, certainly among the major stakeholders, but there wasn't enough to show for the will and costs just kept going up? What if there was all the will in the world and a growing number of ideas about how to reduce the upward trend, but insufficient evidence that the ideas were translating into actions and costs just kept going up? What if there were solid initiatives to point to around the country, but unless every part of the healthcare industry, including consumers, opted in, even the best of efforts wouldn't make a dent, and healthcare costs just kept going up? Well, I'm speaking in hypothetical terms about a situation that's actually probably closer to re- the reality we have now, but we're all a part of changing this story, and that's our agenda on this edition of WIHI. Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered every other week and also for your convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. And talking about runaway spending in healthcare seems a bit annoying during the holiday season, but we do have some bright spots to point to. And please don't forget those New Year's resolutions uh, you can get busy crafting right around now. And I'd love to now introduce my guests and a reminder that more detailed bios are on the WIHI web pages, but in brief. So first of all, on the phone, that's me, by the way, on, on your screen, and then on the phone is Robert Murray. He's the Executive Director of the Maryland Health Services Cost Review Commission, and he's been in that post for the past 16 years which is enough time to have seen an awful lot of major shifts with health care policy nationally and I'm sure in the state of Maryland. And all the while, Maryland stuck with its own system to hold down hospital costs. Uh, so we're going to find, uh, I think, an intriguing tale here and some really interesting things going on in Maryland. Welcome to WIHI, Robert Murray. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, happy to be here. Terrific. And it's my pleasure to welcome I, excuse me, IHI's Executive Vice President and COO, Jeffrey Selberg, to WIHI. He's here in the studio with me and fresh off of a number of talks he's been giving on the very subject we're addressing today. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. All right. Terrific. So we're going to just dive in and get our feet wet. This is a huge topic, so bear with us. Uh, we're going to try and cover a lot of different areas and ideas here. Uh, I like to say WIHI is where we do a lot of thinking uh, together uh, in in a certain way and see what we can generate uh, by coming together in some uh, bracketed time uh, to to talk about a pretty complex issue. One of the things that intrigued me as I've been developing this program uh, with Jeff is that uh, he was kind of giving me the updates as he was pulling slides together and ideas together. Then he went out to uh, the state of Washington in the Seattle area, and he spoke to hospitals out there. You were at the University of Washington? That's right. Okay. And when I asked him when he got back, I said, so how did it go? And he said, well, the interesting thing was for a while there, everyone in the audience or many in the audience related to the talk about costs as though they were observers. Now, these are hospital and other healthcare leaders. And then at some point, everybody 
thought, oh, actually, this is we're in this story, and uh, it became a very different conversation. I was saying to Jeff, it almost reminds me of an out of body. You think there's an accident happening, uh, but I'm not in this uh, scenario, and guess what? I am. So, what was that like, and what do you think was the shift? What do you think happened, Jeff? Well, I think it's probably the way I presented it because I was presenting a series of numbers that we'll get into here uh, shortly and the reasons uh, for those numbers. And I think uh, I was treating them like observers. And we were into some debate about uh, my theories. And then it became, I think, evident to all of us that this isn't someone else's problem. This is our problem. And it's going to require all of us to take the steps necessary to uh, come to a resolution. Okay. Well, uh, so those of you, uh, we'll, we'll have an interesting time. Perhaps Perhaps you can tell us over the course of the program, particularly when we open things up in the second half hour, do you see yourself in the middle of this story or still watching it? Robert Murray, um, we're going to get into what's been going on in Maryland, but I think just a general uh, first question is how do we understand why one state and one state only in the U.S. has stuck with an all-payer rate-setting system for hospitals through thick and thin. When I was a reporter, I can remember when states were throwing out rules and regulations uh, for uh, that had to do with uh, hospital costs and what insurers' uh, rates would be, you know, right and left during the 80s and 90s. So, is there something in the water in Maryland? <laughs> um, well, it's not the fact that people have referred to Maryland as the People's Republic of Maryland um, in the past, but I think it has to do with a number of, of factors. Some of them political. Um, there's, we've been able to keep a political coalition uh, supportive of rate regulation, uh, primarily because you, many people see that it's, it has generated significant value for the, the citizens and also for healthcare providers in the state. Um, I think it, it so it does relate to the fact that we've been able to maintain that that political support also support from the hospitals themselves uh, I think it's the 80-20 rule uh, 70-30 any point in time over our history 70-30 uh, split 70% of hospitals have supported rate setting 30% see the grass greener but, but they've always been uh, strong supporters particularly the academic medical centers and then lastly I think it has to do with our regulatory approach which has been very macro oriented not micro uh, uh, regulation we don't try to tell the hospitals how to run themselves we set broad targets and then enforce those targets but otherwise give them a fair amount of uh, management autonomy okay well interesting and I think we're going to uh, get into the components of what's been going on in Maryland and what you're building upon right now in just a sec so I'm going to go back to you, Jeff. Now, I keep referring to Jeff Selberg's slides. Uh, we don't do a lot of PowerPoint slides on WIHI, but I always make some exceptions, particularly when we've got some pretty uh, stark graphs and charts that illustrate. So I'm going to ask uh, Matt Morse here. Uh, let's, let's, let's start with uh, another one first. Uh, we've got Matt Morse is helping us out here with uh, some of the ways we want to talk about um, what what we're doing right now with healthcare costs, the uh, trajectory, I should say, we're on. So, Jeff, kind of sure. walk us through some of this. Well, what this uh, graph is is it shows healthcare costs, total healthcare costs, as a percentage of gross domestic product. And the uh, issue that we have is is that our growth in national healthcare spend 
is uh, rapidly uh, outstripping the uh, growth in the GDP. And what is the result of that? Well, the result of that is is that healthcare is consuming a greater proportion of the nation's wealth. Now, this chart goes out to 2082. I'll be 134 <laughs> years old, I think, at that time. So. Okay. Not to worry, but if you look at that line, you can see that if we continue with the national spend for healthcare being greater than the GDP, we're going to consume an incredible uh, proportion of the GDP, and most of us feel that that's just not sustainable. In the last year, for example, we had relatively no growth in GDP, yet we had a 7% growth in the national health care spend. And it just seems, even though we're in a recession, uh, health care costs keep going up. So uh, this is the concern. Uh, there's less resources for education, infrastructure, other important things if this trend continues. All right. Should we look at a, a couple <clears throat> more there, sort sure. of illustrate uh, another way of looking at some of the right. same? Yeah. Right. Now, yeah. Um, I was curious about well, what are the actual numbers? And so in 2008... We spent almost $2.4 trillion, 16.2% of uh, GDP, the GDP being $14 trillion. And the projection by uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid is, is that by 2019, that spend will be almost $4.6 trillion on a uh, GDP of a little bit over $23 trillion, or almost 20% of the GDP. So the growth is going to continue. Okay. And you have one that also kind of illustrates even if things remain constant. Right. And yeah. I think uh, w what's important here is is that if we were able to keep it constant at, say, 16.2, we're already a little higher than that uh, now, that we would save something on the order of $800 billion if we could just keep the proportions uh, equal. So, interesting okay. number. All right, and just to get a little more uh, personal, there's one more that I thought were the percentage of family income. Is that one in there, Matt? Um, this yes. one. Yes. I, I thought that was important to look at, too. This slide comes from Lynn Nichols. Uh, Lynn Nichols is with George Mason uh, University. He was with the New America Foundation. He's uh, what I like to classify as an evangelical uh, economist. Uh, he does some great work. And what he's showing here is the projection of the family health care spend uh, as a percentage of their total median income. And the two numbers, 2016, the first number is if you were to assume that what an employer pays uh, on behalf of the employee as income, then we're slightly over 30%. If you assumed that if the employer didn't have to pay and took that to uh, profits as opposed to the individual's income, then uh, it's well over 40%. And, and as Lynn said to me uh, recently, any way you cut it, uh, having uh, this percentage be over 30% is a real problem. What's interesting is is that in the early 1900s, most families spent close to 40 to 45% on food mm. as part of their uh, income. And so uh, here we are, or here uh, may we be, unless we do something about these costs. All right. I'm going to, Robert, we'll be back to you in just a second. Um, I want to show one more, which is just to kind of tease us 
us a little bit because sure. this is what we're going to get into. Uh, there's a whole theory around profound knowledge from uh, Deming. Just just describe this for us. Well, uh, Deming is who we at IHI uh, listen to, have listened to. Our, our uh, performance improvement uh, expertise is based on his theories. And his theory is, is that you can develop great insight if you look at any uh, – Problem, anything you want to improve in four different ways. And it's the integration of those four different ways that gives you the insight. So you want to test theories. You want to build knowledge by saying, I think we have the will uh, to moderate costs, for example. And then you test those theories. Have appreciations for systems in terms of inputs, processes, and outputs. Always having an appreciation that the human side of change, the psychology, is something that you have to be mindful of as you test changes. And then understanding variation. One of the things that uh, we see, I think, continually is the amount of variation that the Dartmouth Health Atlas shows, for example, across the country, and then the Commonwealth Fund shows some real variation internationally as far as the U.S. total spend and what they get for that spend. So we are looking at bending the cost curve using Deming's uh, theory of profound knowledge. Okay. Thank you very much. This is WIHI, and we're doing our part to bend the cost curve with the help of IHI's Jeff Selberg and Robert Murray from the Maryland Health Services Cost Review Commission. So, Robert Murray, when you and your colleagues kind of look at some of the same uh, charts and graphs uh, that Jeff was just showing, and a reminder, by the way, any WIHI participant today that's on audio only or joining by phone, you can download all these slides uh, at the end of the program. And if you're not online to do that, you can uh, email info at IHI.org, and we'll be happy to send those to you. So, Robert, when you look at this information, do you – Maryland's in a slightly different position than the rest of the country. You breathe a sigh of relief, uh, or is it just a, a reminder of the constant vigilance that's needed there, too? Uh, well, I do think that we have a unique opportunity in Maryland. Uh, we're pretty well positioned to – uh, move down the path of innovation and payment reform, uh, and that will stimulate delivery system reform uh, to try to rein in the success of growth and cost uh, and actually bend the cost curve. And we've had some experience in doing that. Uh, the slide that you see uh, currently shows our experience uh, from 1976 to uh, more or less the current period where Maryland's uh, cost curve is that uh, uh, reddish curve on the lower side where uh, given the structure uh, the uniform payment structure that we have here the fact that we have an all-payer system which brings in private payers as well as public payers into a common payment uh, incentive uh, gives us the ability to along with payment innovation to really uh, uh, try to stimulate uh, opportunities on the side of the providers to actually um, uh, generate productivity and and then on top of that the the commission has basically created a structure where the payment updates are a hair below what they are nationally over this period of time our payment update average was about medical inflation plus one percent whereas the u.s. was growing on on average about inflation plus two to three percent and so over time you do generate 
savings. Uh, and in fact, we estimate that having bent the, the cost curve down in this way, we've saved the state an excess of $43 billion um, in averted hospital expenditures. That is, had we grown at the national rate of growth, there would have been $43 billion cumulatively of additional hospital expenditures. And one of the ways that we've been able to do that um, is it's having this uniform payment structure that includes both Medicare, Medicaid, and private payers is it takes away the ability of, of hospitals to uh, pursue what I'll call top-line strategies, um, focusing it on revenue growth, maximizing uh, their negotiating leverage in a particular market, and then increasing their markups that they charge the private payers uh, and effectively what's referred to as cost shifting the the shortfalls in uncompensated care or lower public payments to the private market. And you can see this chart shows over time the phenomenon that has occurred nationally somewhat commensurate with significant market concentration throughout the United States providers in various markets. And there was a great piece by Paul Ginsburg recently from the, the Center for Health System Change uh, that documents this uh, uh, this uh, change over time that's occurred. And um, what it does, basically, is it gives providers the ability to shift the cost instead of focusing on managing it. In Maryland, because we control the markup, uh, it basically uh, requires that hospital managers focus on managing the care and, and trying to control costs. And the, the proof is in the pudding. We've, we've been able to do that over that period of time. Okay. So I had one more. Thank you, Robert Murray uh, from Maryland. I'm going to shoot up one more slide there just to give you a chance. Um, let's see. It's, it's going to be key operational features uh, of the system. That's the slide we're looking for here, if we can find it. It just maybe give us an eye. I, you've sort of, you started to allude to this, but let's just make sure everyone has a pretty good picture of uh, how the system works. Anything that uh, you didn't m just mention? Sure. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the, just the structure of the commission itself. We're an independent uh, government agency, uh, both politically and legally independent. Um, uh, we report directly to the governor, uh, not to the Department of Health, who runs the Medicaid program. Um, that, uh, the, For whatever reason, Maryland has had a culture of leaving us alone independently, which has given us a great deal of flexibility to, to try to act in the interest of the public broadly defined. Uh, we're legally independent in that the, all of the administrative decisions of the commission are appealable only to the circuit court. There is no further administrative appeal uh, process. We have uh, volunteer commissioners. That's my board of directors, basically, that I report to. They're volunteers, as I said, appointed by the governor. They all have a, an interest and expertise in health care, and they, they really uh, bring... Uh, to the table that expertise, but also a desire to represent, again, the public broadly defined and not individual constituencies. We also have a very flexible statute um, where, uh, intentionally, we didn't put in the methods and the details of rate setting into statute and regulation to try to give the agency some degree of flexibility over time to, to change uh, in response to changing trends in the healthcare industry. Um, our our operational features are really uh, similar in some respects to Medicare. We have a prospective inpatient system, payment system, that is uh, based on a per case or a DRG uh, payment type of structure, as well as a per case bundled payment system for outpatient visits. And that common payment system is applicable to all payers um, because we have a waiver from Medicare and Medicaid. 
And under that waiver, uh, the federal government has ceded control to us, in essence, to say uh, what they will pay for hospitalizations in the state. There's a strong focus on rate compliance. I mentioned that we have a macro orientation to regulation, um, but but we need to make sure that hospitals are meeting the targets that we set for them. So so that has been an important feature of the system. Um, but otherwise, try to give managerial um, autonomy and flexibility as much as we possibly can to those who operate facilities. There's also a, a forum for comp- cooperative rulemaking that takes place. So when we put together a any major policy change, we bring both payer representatives and hospital representatives, bring them in the room and try to negotiate out um, uh, these, these uh, major changes to our policies. And the whole structure really has allowed us to meet our major goals, which are the ones that are listed below, cost containment, equity, access to care. We finance over a billion dollars of uncompensated care in the rates uh, that we set for hospitals, so arguably a better access to care here. The, uh, the fact that we have a stable and predictable system also means uh, a, a better ability for hospital man- managers to manage their facilities. Um, there's also a high degree of accountability and transparency because virtually all of our deliberations are done in public and all of our data are public. And then our, our last focus more recently as we've generated quality metrics has been in, the, in assuring um, the clinical side is, is operating as effectively as the, uh, the efficiency side. So I, you know, this is the reason we were so thrilled and I was so thrilled that we could have you on the program is that there's quite a system in place here. Uh, we're going to talk in a moment about some of the challenges uh, that are facing, uh, uh, the, the, that the uh, commission is facing as well as, uh, as health care delivery there. But I guess I want to go back to you, Jeff, and say, so you're looking at this. You're, uh, we're going to ask you in a moment about some of the ideas you have about bending the cost curve. So, um, wh- what about uh, what about uh, this this system in Maryland? Uh, why isn't everybody flocking to Maryland to, <laughs> or is this just a another accident of history, and uh, we we don't seem to know what what to do with it elsewhere? Well, I think I think the point was made uh, by Robert well that there's there's a, uh, a culture, a, a set of politics in Maryland that perhaps, uh, while not unique, may be unusual. I think the the interesting question to ask Robert would be uh, that they've done a wonderful job in terms of uh, hospital costs, but but what is the trend in terms of the overall per capita cost in Maryland uh, against uh, say other states, and does it show uh, the same thing? Because while hospitals uh, represent a large part of the total uh, spend, uh, they're probably in the 30 to 35 percent category. So it would be interesting to know what the whole spend trend is. All right. There's your question. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. um, It's uh, varied over time, um, but actually on a per capita basis for for Medicare statistics, we don't look that good. And it's largely because our, our, our universe in terms of our regulatory authority is all geared toward regulating the growth of per case charges and costs or mm-hmm. per visit uh, charges and costs. We have limited ability to provide incentives for hospitals, at least up until now, uh, for limiting the number of admissions or readmissions or visits they have to their emergency room. And so 
the hospitals here are facing a, a conflicting set of incentives. They, they have strong incentives to reduce utilization per case, but very strong incentives to ramp up the volumes. And um, we've tried to make some changes in recent years to sort of uh, curtail that incentive, um, but, but still hospitals here have been top-line focused as well until now and we are I, I believe on on the the verge of implementing some very very significant bundled payment structures that will start to get at that that last remaining issue around overall utilization in the system um, and build upon the system that we've got here that infrastructure that i mentioned and all payer rate setting common payment structure common incentives uh... and then trying to meet our other goals at the same time robert uh I think that's a very important point because I know in other uh, communities that the I, the fact that they have, that hospitals or other providers have multiple payers that the prospect of bundled payment and different approaches from a variety of different payers is is not a positive one. And I think what you're saying is is that you would be able to pilot efforts and you could homogenize this, so to speak, in terms of being the single payer. Yeah, and we're it's not at all a single payment system here in Maryland, single payer system here in Maryland. It's more that our agency acts as a kind of homogenizing element to, to align payment across all payers. Uh, but it retains the, the pluralistic... Uh, payer structure that we are seem to be wedded to in this country, um, uh, but but precisely structures the incentives to to be more rational, and that does indeed give hospital managers some advantage in the sense that they don't have to have 30 or 40 different payment structures that they worry about, um, which probably reduces administ- administrative costs significantly. Uh, plus, we have the ability to to build on that structure and bundle out uh, payments, uh, expanding the scope of services that we have under payment um, to include additional services. They could be uh, admission and readmission, so continuing with just hospital services, or even bundle out into um, non-hospital services, uh, uh, physician care around specific procedures, um, and uh, even uh, capitating hospitals. We have a number of facilities now this year who are opting for global budget payments mm-hmm. for all of their revenue, inpatient and outpatient, which again provides a platform to build out to non-hospital services. All right. Well, sounds good, Robert Murray. So, Jeff, before we go to uh, questions, talk a little bit about this overspend because therein lies, I think, opportunity <laughs> as we're starting to talk about. Well, uh, Deming would call this variation analysis. And, and, <laughs> and what McKinsey Global Institute did is uh, evaluate 13 countries, uh, first world countries, in terms of their overall health care spend and then calibrated or equalized uh, differences in nations' wealth, assuming that if you have a greater wealth, you're going to spend more. And what they uh, found is, if we could go to the next uh, slide, is that uh, the m- amount of overspend in terms of that calibration. Which one is that? With this one. <clears throat> this one, right? Yeah. Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. Is about 640 billion dollars. 
and it's primarily in the outpatient area, 430 billion, or and 67 percent of that overspend. You say, well, how could that possibly be? Well, the definition of outpatient here is is anything, frankly, that's not inpatient and not part of the other uh, categories. So diagnostic centers, outpatient surgery, whether it be done on an outpatient in a freestanding center or in the hospital. And what McKinsey found was is that this was a combination of uh, volume and pricing. So it appears on the variation side that uh, we have some opportunity. And if we would go to the next slide uh, and the next one, uh, you can see that if you were able to apply that uh, total overspend to the deficit, it would have uh, quite an impact. So what are the ideas, so to speak, uh, to try to get to this point? And <clears throat> this is where it gets difficult because 40% of uh, the determinant of healthcare has to do with behavior, uh, not with healthcare services. So how do we move to change behavior to healthier lifestyles? How do we change beliefs from more is better to only what I need? How do we create a more discerning consumer through uh, transparency? How do we uh, move to payment reform, which was what Robert was speaking to, in other words, in paying uh, for value as opposed to volume? And then how do we really use variation analysis to leverage comparative effectiveness where those great practices that are going on across the nation and they're out there are spread where literally every practitioner is using them? So those are five ideas, Madge, at the macro level. <laughs> okay, very much uh, macro. All right, uh, Robert, anything you want to say? I mean, I think these are all – I'm going to – I have some questions in my back pocket here about what's in store in Maryland. But let's bring in um, – Let's bring in participants and see what's on their minds now that we've sort of set the table, at least for some ideas. Uh, we don't have all the solutions now, but we're, we're getting some stuff out there. So uh, folks, uh, feel free to go ahead and, and ask some questions, and we'll sort of move through them. Um, I uh, – whoops. All right. So, Robert, uh, to say – oops, I see where they are here. I'm sorry. I have a small screen. I've got to enlarge that a little bit. Let's go here. All right. Let's see what we got here. Where do we get a copy of these slides again? Always a good first question. Um, you can email info at IHI.org for the slides. Uh, if you are joining us online uh, via computer, you can also uh, download them when you uh, log off of WebEx. It was hard to hear Matt, so we'll have to do something about Matt's uh, microphone. So I'm moving through. American uh, committed to saving. That's it. Sorry about this, folks. I'm just trying to see if I can get through some of these. Hospital. Oh, wow. Somebody's been writing. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was very little reaction in the media to the recent release of the NCQA relative resource use results. What do you make of this? And maybe somebody, uh, do we do we know what, what uh, the reference is here, uh, either Jeff or Robert? I, I don't know that I'm all right. qualified to comment. Okay, on all right. I wonder if we could go to the earlier question at the end, the long one, because I think there was a right uh, okay. question there. Okay, I'm just trying to open there it. There we go. All right. Um, all right, so this has to do with a lot of – boy, this person really typed in a lot about health-acquired infections. Um Savings attainable. If hospitals are able to cut health-acquired infections in half, it represents cost savings 
of right. almost 16 billion each year to say nothing right. of the nearly 50,000 deaths avoided. Do you think such savings are attainable? Absolutely. Um, and I think we go to the uh, in, uh, Office of the Inspector General's report here last week in terms of uh, rate of harm and the uh, amount of costs in defects. And I think one of the things that IHI believes in strongly is is that we can manage costs through enhancing uh, safety uh, access and clinical outcomes. So certainly uh, the preventable harm can be reduced and reduced significantly uh, using improvement science. So I think we can uh, get those gains. It means uh, the challenge is, is focusing on the uh, on the problem and uh, and solving it. Robert, a lot of questions for you about you know what does the public make of the system in Maryland? Uh, to what extent is any uh, does this system in any way get at changing uh, lifestyle, uh, people's health habits? Uh, how are, do you think that any of this is uh, impacting population health? You, you're, you have to do it all, you know. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Let me just drop back to that first question. Sure. No, I wanted to make okay. a point about the 155 billion. Yeah. Um, while the hospitals may have pledged to save that amount of money uh, for the federal government, it's going to be potentially largely through payment cuts that uh, CMS will impact. Um, over the next 10 years. The difficulty with that is it probably won't translate into overall health care cost savings because of the, the configuration of the, the market today. There are these very, very highly concentrated markets uh, where providers have muscled up over the years, and those cuts in Medicare payments will just likely be shifted to the private sector over time. So basically, it's a bunch of smoke and mirrors, and there won't be a lot that will be accomplished because of the fact that we have this fragmented payment structure. Um, so I wanted to, to make that point. Um, now, there may be some some marginal quality gains that will be achieved, but again, it, it, it will be all primarily driven by Medicare and Medicare payments um, and without uh, that ability to homogenize the incentives across the, the spectrum broadly defined. So that is a, that's a huge conundrum that I think we're going to have to grapple with as a country. I'm not necessarily regulate, uh, uh, advocating a regulatory structure like we have here in Maryland, but there needs to be some type of mechanism that um, brings together more of a common payment basis uh, for public and private payers would be the first point that I'd make. Okay. Um, now, with regard to issues of what do consumers think, I think we're the best kept secret in Maryland that most consumers <laughs> don't even know we exist. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but, but at least when you look at your hospital bill, that's what you pay. It's not some some bill and then there's a 40 or 60 percent discount listed on it off of some real unrealistically high charge um so but so i think overall it's been very positive for consumers even though they may not be fully aware of of the structure here it's been very positive for the uninsured in that uh, they can go to to the hospital emergency room or to hospitals and be admitted or treated and um hospitals are largely uh, they recoup that payment through the rate setting system, so it adds to the access uh, for care in the state pretty significantly. Um, we haven't done a lot with regard to uh, the issue of uh, trying to uh, sensitize consumers and, and, and you know uh, in terms of consumer and patient responsibility, but there is a huge potential for that by uh, providing if data and information. Um, to consumers as they become more responsible financially for the care that they receive, to have that information publicly available so that they can compare and contrast 
hospitals and providers on multiple dimensions, both a cost dimension and a quality dimension for any type of, of uh, diagnosis or treatment they may, they may be seeking. And we have the ability to do that and have plans to do that and make our website very interactive um, and stratify providers on the basis of value. That is, you know, the, the value, the care that they provide, how efficient are they, uh, what types of complication rates do they have for a particular procedure uh, or readmission rates, and then link that to mortality rates and have that information publicly available. Okay, thank you. Robert Murray. Kevin uh, Riddleberger has a question. Where does integrated healthcare accountable care organizations and medical homes come into play with bending the cost curve? I'm going to go back to you, Jeff, on this I mean, these are sort of both the macro and where we're, we're also seeing most some of the most um, innovation right now. Right. I, I think all of these structures have the potential to create an environment where the design of care is redesigned into a more efficient and effective system. So if, in fact, an accountable care organization is incentivized, for example, to look at care over a broader time horizon and make sure that the coordination through the modalities is uh, more effectively done and that the patient is cared for in the right place at the right time uh, with a fully integrated information system, chances are the clinical outcome is going to be good if not great, and the costs are going to be uh, to be lower. I think the question that's out there is is that are these organizations getting themselves structured to do what I just described, or in fact, is it more of a market play to try to control the marketplace? And uh, we we live in a in a open free market uh, society in some ways, and. Um, we don't uh, create uh, issues for people who, who want to compete that way. I would just say that our belief here at IHI is is that all these new structures need to be thinking about how to provide care more efficiently and effectively and, and leave the market uh, to decide if, in fact, they're providing the, the best value possible. Thanks, uh, Jeff Selberg. A lot of questions that uh, people want to know, uh, a lot of ins and outs here of Maryland. One question, Robert, has to do with what it would mean to have an all-MD payer rate. Uh, does this mean all providers, hospitals, and physicians are paid the same rate for a given treatment, asks T. Elmore. I think um, we're not certainly not moving in the direction of trying to regulate physicians, Um and if we do, I will certainly quit this job. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but rather, I think there's a different approach, which is the approach that we are pursuing to economically regulate physicians by gradually building out the bundle of payments that we have under our purview. Um, but, but again, providing the providers much more fiscal autonomy uh, underneath that payment bundle. An example uh, would be these global uh, budgets that we set for more rural facilities uh, where we capitate essentially their total revenue for inpatient and outpatient hospital services. Um, that gives them a lot of flexibility then to allocate resources clinically as they see fit to be efficient and also provide high quality care. If you could use that as a platform then to bring in physician services, post-acute services, um, you effectively give them the flexibility to regulate other providers 
but under a common set of incentives which is to improve the value um, broadly speaking and the care that they provide that that community um, and and so I can foresee a situation where most providers are under these types of payment structures, uh, but it, through an evolutionary course where we're gradually building out um, and doing it on a voluntary basis, but then rewarding these provider groups uh, if they are indeed able to, to produce better value. I think this uh, question of uh, really the value uh, component seems to be uh, floating through a lot of questions. Uh, Chris writes here, it sounds like Maryland has controlled payments for hospital services but not driven hospital primary care health uh, promotion connections that actually prevent service utilization. And that's clearly the direction it sounds like that you're moving in. Are you going to be jumping right in or already into uh, some sort of accountable care organization pilot? Are you involved uh, heavily in that uh, direction? Not specifically the way Medicare has defined ACOs, the shared savings program, but rather more kind of a Maryland twist on it, which would be, as I said, more of this this bundled payment initiative, uh, starting with the global budgets that we're setting for more of the rural facilities. And then also for hospitals in urban areas, um, we're getting a lot of interest from facilities to bundle admission and readmission uh, into a single payment. Um, in fact, I think this coming fiscal year, we may have as many as 12 or 15 facilities, um, you know, revenues of close to $4 billion, inpatient revenues, that would be under a Geisinger-type uh, admission-readmission bundled structure. Now, that is going to incentivize those facilities to reach out into the community to coordinate more effectively with primary care physicians, um, in addition to improving their discharge planning services um, and communicating with patients more effectively to create that health promotion connection that's uh, discussed in the question. So, yes, indeed, we're moving in that direction gradually as hospitals are able to do it organizationally and also financially. Thanks, Robert Murray. Uh, Jeff, a couple questions I'll throw your way. Uh, there's some questions somebody's asking about. You know, It's almost like either who's going to blink or who's going to make the first move, uh, kind of a sense of urgency. Uh, that was one uh, question I saw you were, you were eyeing there mm-hmm. also on the chat screen. And if there's another one that you want to uh, tackle, go right ahead. Yeah, I, I think it is It is the question, um, and I don't think any of us can f- afford to wait to, for someone else to make the next move, uh, especially those of us uh, who are in the, in the field. Um, I think the numbers should convince us that we have to figure out how to bring more value to, to health care. One of the things that uh, IHI is in the middle of is something called the, the triple aim, where we're working with uh, various communities to figure out what approaches are most effective in advancing the population's health, improving the experience of individual care, and managing per capita costs. Uh, We have an effort in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, for example, and we're looking for uh, more opportunities. Um, I know the the Center for Improving Value in Healthcare in Colorado is uh, also looking at how this triple aim can be uh, made most effective. The problem I think we have is is that we show national numbers and there's really no one um, that can deal with those those numbers at a community level. 
And one of the efforts that we're undertaking with the Commonwealth Fund as IHI is to determine how we can bring these numbers to a community level where they're actionable. So whether that is a county, a series of counties, a city, uh, a hospital uh, referral area, uh, such that we can have uh, manageable uh, metrics, if you will, that we can work off of. And that's where I think the uh, the future lies in community-based efforts like that. So, uh, by the way, Robert, somebody is inviting you to California to work for in that state as well. <laughs> Casey, well, like great. I grew up in Palo Alto. Oh, all right. Well, go oh. home then. It sounds like people would love love to have you there. Uh, there's a lot of technical questions people are asking about how things work in Maryland, and uh, we probably in our time today won't be able to get to all of them. Um, I am going to invite folks to uh, definitely go on the website of uh, the Cost Review Commission, and we'll get the link up there. It will also be in our resource document that you could find it, uh, on the website. Uh, some of those questions, I suspect, will be answered there. Uh, I'm just sort of scrolling through here. Robert, I don't know if you're also sort of looking Looking through, mm-hmm. what's what's the percent of the uninsured in Maryland? We'll just throw that in there. Well, I think it's around 17 percent. Uh, so we're about at the national average, uh, maybe a little below. And um, we've uh, been able to accommodate and help and facilitate a Medicaid expansion the last two years that have has uh, made a bit of a. Uh, an impact on, on the number of uninsured. Interesting, we use the, the rate setting system to, similar to a program that uh, Massachusetts pioneered several years ago, um, to anticipate a reduction in uncompensated care because of the expansion and, um, and use the rate setting system to help finance some of that. Uh, so there are a number of tools uh, that uh, are at our disposal having a structure like this as well. Another one is in the era of excess capacity, we were able to, to build in incentives into our rate structures to provide um, inducements for hospital systems to close facilities that were high cost, low occupancy, and um, and then defees the uh, public body obligations, the debt associated with those facilities in the rates that were applied to all hospitals. So it provided significant incentives for uh, health systems to downsize, uh, which we expect when utilization declines rapidly under our bundled payments in the future that we may need to make use of that tool again. So just just the point that when you have a common structure like this, it does give you the ability to do some other very interesting and beneficial things. Thanks, Robert. And we did get the link up there to the Health Services Cost Review Commission. Jeff, again, kind of a, uh, maybe, I don't know if it's an existential question or not, uh, somebody is asking, you know, with your first point, which is how everyone starts to see themselves not only as part Mm -hmm. of the problem, but the solution. Uh, You referred to some of the work in the triple aim, and I I think that's partly an example of what we're seeing of a lot of folks opting in to solve. Uh, any any uh, specific areas uh, of the country you might point to, or places where others may also kind of look that way for seeing a kind of shared ownership? Well, I think there are uh, any number of efforts uh, across the nation where we're just in the beginning stages. and. Uh, perhaps this needs to be a pep rally in that sense because I think community-based efforts that involve both the private and the public sector together 
to determine uh, first and foremost what's best for the community and what's best for the community obviously is advancing the community's health uh, making sure that the individual care is free of defects that's what IHI has stood for in its 20-year history and getting real clear as to uh, what our per capita costs are in a particular community how they're trending and and how they can be uh, managed more effectively, and and the ideas there's there's uh, literally tens and thousands of ideas. I think the question uh, is the the execution capacity in a particular community, and that starts with will, and that's how you started, Match. It, it starts with people saying uh, we have a higher calling here. We are going to govern our own commons, to use Eleanor Ostrom's. Uh, terminology, and we're going to find something that's uh, far more effective uh, for the people we care for in our community at large. So I think the organizing principle is the most important thing, starting with Will. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Les Meyer here is letting us all know on chat about the Informed Opinion Leadership Action Group. Uh, There's something taking place in January of 2011 and provided uh, the link to that as well. Thank you. Uh, One question I wanted to ask, um, and and I think it's also a question of um, if if you, either of you, I'm going to ask, if you could wave a magic wand uh, and say what we should all be doing now is working on this, um, I'm curious what it would be. Uh, One of the things that I felt as I was preparing for this program is that there are a lot of good ideas and there are a lot of things that point in the right direction. And one I'm just thinking of is value-based care. Um, is there at some level, is it is is there almost sort of too much being kind of thrown out there and is there something that people should maybe latch on to more and, and really work it uh, much harder? Robert, any thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, I think that the primary recommendation we would have, given our experience, is that uh, there needs to be some effort at a national level or individual state level to uh, homogenize payment and payment structures. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that could be accomplished, except for perhaps um, set some upper payment limit, some maximum obligation for private payers uh, to try to, to rein in the the markups and the cost shifting that, that are that is occurring increasingly. Again, I would point to the the recent study that uh, Paul Ginsburg and the Health System, the Center for Health System Change, uh, implemented. Then, if you start to create a, a more common basis for payment, you can you can start to accomplish some of the things that we've accomplished here. Have have more common uh, incentives, more uniform incentives that providers will respond to. You can build in strong incentives for quality into into that overall uniform uh, structure as well. And notice a lot of the attendees uh, are asking questions about that. I wholeheartedly support much more focus on uh, developing quality metrics, uh, patient experience of care metrics, and then uh, linking those in a very, very robust way to financial incentives. There's both a fiscal imperative and also a clinical imperative that we're facing. We think you can do both, accomplish both by, by putting uh, a payment system in place that uh, provides strong incentives uh, for the behavior that you're trying to uh, create, um, but you need some sort of common structure to do that. 
in the absence of, of something that homogenizes payment, the country's just not going to get there. Thanks, Robert. What do you think, Jeff? Well, I, I asked uh, that we put these five ideas uh, up, and and I certainly agree with Robert that, that payment reform uh, and finding ways to incentivize improvement uh, well beyond uh, the certain uh, the kinds of payment mechanisms we have now, especially fee-for-service, fee for has a lot of leverage. I think number three in creating a more discerning consumer, and I would say also provider through transparency. I, I think it's essential that we get information out to everyone in terms of comparative performance on quality, safety, uh, access, cost, pricing. And uh, I think we'll see quite a dynamic. I think we can do a far better job in terms of really getting the information out there in terms of what the best practices uh, actually are. Now, the first two are tough uh, in terms of changing behavior and changing beliefs. And frankly, you need to change beliefs before you can change behavior. But we have to uh, move in that direction because demand, when CDC says one in three Americans is going to have diabetes, it's the most significant epidemic of disease ever uh, in the history of the country, uh, that has to do with uh, what we eat and how we exercise, and we should never give up on that. So I'd say we've got to attack all five. All right. So it's all, it's a bundle into unto itself. I just want to quickly mention uh, that uh, on December 14th, an IHI web-based program is going to be getting off the ground apropos uh, our theme today. Uh, teaching teams to use IHI's hospital inpatient waste identification tool. Folks have been very hard at work in this for quite a while, and you can find out about it. Expert faculty will demonstrate how to use this tool to identify high-yield opportunities to reduce waste and set organizational priorities based on good financial and political realities of organizations. And we've got a slide up there about that. More information is available on IHI.org. I'm going to give each of you a Kind of one more shot here. Uh, Robert, uh, you know, Jeff, I think, has a, a nice slide he's about to post up as sort of what's the opportunity. I, I was saying to him before the program began, you know, we always say what's at stake if we don't act. So Jeff wants to talk about what's at stake if we do act. And uh, maybe I'll kind of give you that, that opportunity to sort of your most uh, positive sense of uh, what, what should give us some hope. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of people are also very, very interested in what's going on in Maryland. So Hopefully, uh, they'll inquire even more. Well, I think one of the biggest things that, that at least we've seen here, and, and presumably it will apply nationally as well, is just the sentinel effect of having passed health care reform is created a lot of energy and a lot of uncertainty and anxiety, and sometimes those things can be unproductive, but I see it as being very productive uh, in allowing or, or sort of inducing the, the hospitals here to be more receptive to experimenting and, be, and, and sort of grappling with kind of back to the original uh, uh, set of things that you talked about your observations, Jeff, when you were in Seattle, um, they realized that they really are in this dream, and they've got to They've got to grapple with costs. They're living this, and they have the ability to, to address it. And I think health reform, more than any other thing, has, has created that mentality, at least here in Maryland. I, I would imagine also nationally. So people are more receptive. And um, they realize that there are opportunities, too, at the same time. As I mentioned, changing payment gives, theoretically, payers uh, pay, or providers more Autonomy in terms of uh, clinically how to integrate and allocate their res their resources, and I see those as very positive things. 
All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, somebody asked for those five ideas again. Maybe we should all put them on a, you know, <laughs> big T-shirt and start walking around. We'll see if that homogenizes some things. Uh, Matt, I think there's one more nice slide of uh, improvement. Okay. So here, here, and, and next one, I guess, uh, here. You got it all there? Oh, something to think about? There we go. All right, that's uh, the one. All right, improvement you know, will drive. Go ahead, Jim. Right, uh, Manch. You know, we so often think about the bad things that will happen if we don't. Uh, but here are the great things that will happen if we do. And uh, I have no doubt that we can advance the population's health, uh, better quality care for patients, we'll have efficiencies to control costs, and we'll improve our national, uh, international competitiveness. There are two uh, final thoughts. First of all, all of us are accountable for the advancement of health and the improvement of health care, uh, all of us. Uh, there are no observers here. The old environmental days of the late 60s, of if, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, is I think really true here. And then the last slide, if I uh, could. So, uh, Einstein, others have said, if you think about the problem in exactly the same way, you're going to come up with exactly the same solutions that don't work. And so something to think about is to think about our population's health as our nation's most precious natural resource. And as a result, we're here to conserve and sustain it, and we have finite resources to ensure safe, effective, efficient, patient-centered, timely, and equitable care. And I think if we think in terms of uh, the conservation movement in this sense and the importance of our nation's health, both physiologically and economically, maybe we'll think differently about how to resolve these issues. All right. Well, thank you very much. So that's Jeffrey Selberg. And again, thank you so much, Robert Murray. Uh, next up on WIHI on December 16th at the same time, 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to feature four people who uh, are organizing and attending a first-of-its-kind national summit of patient activists that's happening adjacent to IHI's forum this year. They're coming from all over the country to compare notes and conceive of a more coordinated strategy linking multiple efforts, and I have the good fortune of having four people from that event who will be with us on the 16th, so you can check out our website uh, for more information about that and enroll right away if you'd like to. And again, a reminder, all our programs are available if you look under the archive tab on the WIHI section of IHI.org, where you'll also find find an audio uh, download of today's program by the end of today or tomorrow morning. Check out iTunes as well and look for that wonderful resource document that Vicki Minden puts together. And a reminder, when you log off the program today, if you don't don't mind. We'd love it if you could fill out a brief survey. Don't forget to uh, say you do want to download the slides, so you have that as well. And you can also download the chat, so you have this very, very rich conversation uh, that took place today. And again, if you're missing anything or not sure what I just said, email info at IHI.org. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden have some neat original music that opens and closes the program by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sapasoa. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care. Most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for your participation today, guests and participants alike. Good day. Mm-hmm.